Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined from Biden's America by our regular US correspondent, Jason Wilson. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Oh, thank you for having me once again. Now, Jason, you have ascended from The Guardian recently to the Southern Poverty Law Centre. How has that been? It's been great. I am working alongside a, a bunch of people who are very dedicated, very skilled. One of the interesting things about the transition has been that a lot of the stuff that I was having to tr- kind of try to do all by myself is is actually happening in collaboration with researchers who are I think it's safe to say some of them are, are, the, are the best at what they do. Yeah, no, it's it's been really good. Although I should hasten to add that I'm I'm off the clock currently, so I'm not at all pretending to be a spokesman for the organisation. This is just just me shooting the breeze. But with that said, yeah, I mean, I think that I have not had a lot of opportunities for sort of direct collaboration while I was with the Guardian and, you know, being a freelancer and a contractor, it was sort of like me, me doing it all by myself and, and collaborating with people is a wonderful thing. And in this kind of work, it, it's just really good to be talking to people who understand why the work is important, but also understand who, who also understand why it can be taxing, also funny sometimes, you know, I don't know. It's, it's good to be part of a team there. And, and as you know, there is no I in team. So. I've also undergone ego death. But yeah, no, it's good. It's good. It's good to be it's good to be collaborating with other people in this stuff and and to be yeah, I suppose leaning on other people and and drawing strength from one another. Uh one of your recent collaborations has been with uh, Bellingcat and Michael Colborn and Hannah Gase, both of whom have been on the show. You looked into a former Marine who had co- cooperated extensively with Robert Rundo of the Rise Above movement. What did you find out about this uh, jarhead? So, I, I, you know, we said former Marine because he did formally enlist. He went through most of basic training. Um, oh, actually, I don't know if that counts then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, to the US Marine Corps' credit, they booted him. You know, they didn't give us any details, of course, because, you know, they have, you know, privacy sort of rules to abide by. If you read the story, you will see that we, we have surmised that they, they found out something about his entanglements with various far-right actors and uh, decided to bounce him at that point. And he actually told, under an alias, he told a, a publication called Balkan Insight that he had been kicked out for political reasons. 
But they weren't able to identify him, but but yeah, we were able to kind of put that together. But on the other hand, he got through most of basic training and they're not screening these guys. They're not doing all of that screening before they sort of embark on basic training. So I guess the concern is that maybe getting a guy two-thirds of the way through basic training in the U.S. Marine Corps is kind of a result for these guys, you know, in the in the sense that they get all of the, the kind of weapons training and a lot of the a lot of the basic training that a U.S. Marine gets. But anyway, he got bounced by the Marine Corps and we absolutely established that just weeks after that, he he went over to Europe, hung out with Rob Rondo in his his current location of exile in, in Serbia, did some other travel in Europe and has been an active kind of propagandist for Will to Rise, which is, I, I suppose, the successor organization to the Rise Above movement, which Rondo also founded. And whose activities have seen him sort of embroiled in an ongoing federal prosecution. His charges were dismissed at one point, but the, the prosecutor successfully appealed. So he's he's due in court in Santa Ana, California in December. We'll, we'll see what happens there. But currently he's in, in Serbia. And uh, Grady Mayfield is, is the young man's name, went to visit him in Serbia, went to an anti-vax rally with him, you know, appeared on videos that media to rise, the, the media component of, of Rondo's activities made, went to a fairly notorious far-right bar, was captured there, and has just been an active kind of propagandist for for all of Rondo's current projects. And yeah, we, we identified him and, and, and his movements. And I guess, I mean, the reason we thought that this was a story that was worth doing is, one, while it's commendable that he was in fact bounced, the SPLC has reported previously that just getting these guys into training programs is kind of is, is a goal for a lot of far-right groups because it's useful to them. And and also we, we, we felt it was worth reporting out that Rondo was attracting people to travel overseas to, to sort of visit him uh, in Serbia in exile. And, and, you know, I suppose we've been working on this sort of We've been calling it the Rondoverse. We identified also a guy who has called himself Luka Korgiat in Media to Rise videos or Luka Korgiat as uh, Alan Michael Goff, who was a, a fairly locally infamous member and eventually leader of the, the, the creator movement in, in Montana. So a neo-Nazi, uh, you know, a Church of the Creator descended kind of movement uh, in Montana. He was... He was locally notorious for being a leader there and and basically being an open neo-Nazi in Billings, Montana. And he fishes up as the main on-air personality of Media to Rise. We're, we're sort of identifying the people around Rondo, and, and that's kind of worth doing because, yeah, I mean, the guy is, you know, to exercise some legal caution, I won't call him a fugitive, but definitely he's someone who is choosing not to live in the United States at a time when there's a, an active prosecution you know, aimed at him. And he's still attracting these kind of young guys to collaborate with him in, in these projects. And the thing about Rondo's projects currently is that they don't necessarily present themselves immediately to people as a kind of a neo-Nazi or white nationalist sort of project. Grady Mayfield, who we identified, most of the stuff that he's putting out there is more like Manosphere-flavoured, hyper-masculine uh, kind of stuff. You know, when I asked him for, <laughs> when I asked him via Instagram, you know, for comment on our reporting, he, he told me that if I posted physique, he would give me an interview. You know, it, it's this kind of juvenile 
hypermasculine stuff where it's more about exercise and lifting and physique than it is necessarily immediately about white nationalism. But, you know, you, you, you guys will be familiar with this kind of strategy or this sort of presentation of far-right ideology. I mean, people like Jack Donovan and others have, have sort of taken this route. And, yeah, I mean, I wonder, I mean, this Grady Mayfield is only 20 years old still. You know, he's now been identified as someone who's participating in a movement which is led by a guy who is choosing not to be in the United States due to a prosecution, who is who is maybe involved with, you know, the far right in, in, in Serbia and in, in, in Eastern Europe. That's probably not setting him up for a great life. I don't know. We're yet to determine who else has been recruited into this, but I don't, I don't think they're being recruited by a, a blunt, straightforward white nationalist message. They're being recruited into a kind of hyper-masculine project that you might, we might associate more with, you know, Bronze Age pervert and, you know, manosphere figures like that. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I would turn to to Andy and, and to you, Cam, for historical perspective on that because I'm, I'm just sort of coming to grips with this. But, like, it seems like that's a really uh, effective way of, of, of recruiting people into this stuff, recruiting a certain kind of young guy into this stuff. I mean, one thing it does bring to mind in the local context is during the 1990s there were early proponents of father's rights and desire to abolish the family court and, and so on, and there were some, you know, the black shirts, I think they termed themselves. There was a certain kind of ideological crossover, but I'm not sure which who was recruiting from, you know, which community. But it also seems that in this case, yeah, I mean, I, I think about uh, earlier uh, work of the SPLC and others on neo-Nazi infiltration or participation in the US Armed Forces, it being a periodic concern. But on those occasions, it seemed that the participants were already committed members of fairly explicit neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups like the Hammerskins and so on. And they did have the strategy of entering into the military in order to, you know, acquire training and access to arms and, and all that sort of thing. But it seemed to be somewhat smaller scale, slightly more obscure, whereas in this case, I think the net is being spread quite wide. And I think about the you know, gym culture, but also not just, uh, I suppose, um, the military, but uh, MMA and a whole range of other kind of, um, you know, martial activities that seems to be a focus. And, yeah, the development of um, their own gyms and, you know, training spaces, it's certainly appealing. But I suppose if they're going to sustain involvement, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to, to know if this is a, a going concern or a, a tactical consideration. I think the certainly if you look at um, in Australia in the last few years, there has been some debate about how explicit to be about political perspectives. And it seems that, I don't know, it seemed like the, the Nazi element won out. It's, it's, it's not a million miles away from like the lads clubs and stuff though, right? Like it seems like with the contemporary far right, I mean, it, it seems like pulling young guys into this, you know, milieu of lifting and physical self-development and, and, you know, with that in the foreground and, and you know, maybe a generalised kind of sense that there's going to be some some violence and fighting, but joining that up at some point to, yeah, white nationalism and I, I guess, you know, white power uh, kind of ideas at, at the at the broadest, in the broadest kind of 
sense, like the idea that immigrants are bad, the idea that, that there, there's anti-Semitic stuff in, in, in Rondo's output. Certainly there's a kind of desire to be involved in whatever's going on, you know, with Russia and Ukraine at the moment and, and a sort of transnational vision, I suppose, you know, like they're, they're clearly hooking up with Serbian nationalists and others. I don't know. I think there are similarities definitely with, with the sort of lads club strategy in Australia, right? Like it, it's kind of like alienated or, or just pissed off young guys. You can kind of pull them in with this idea of self-improvement and exercise or whatever. And I'm not saying like, <laughs> I'm not saying they're going into it innocently and it just looks like a, a gym club or something. Obviously there's something going on here right from the off that they should be switched on to, I mean, but, but you can pull them into something much more radical, I suppose, over time maybe is the thought. There's a kind of a cultic dimension in the sense that they also provide a regime, a lifestyle of um, you know, practical activities that are meant to engage, you know, occupy their time and their their headspace over a period of time, and and as a group bonding activity as well. That's um, you know they're intended to these activities are intended to solidify the the group, and in that sense, it's yeah. I mean, reminiscent of a long history of um, martial training and I guess you know, various forms of paramilitary formations. Yeah, it's an ethos. It's an e- like not to well. Uh, not to uh, blow any stories here, but you know, I, I, perhaps you've you've heard about Antelope Hill, the the far right publishing company here in the US, who you know they they've translated and reprinted a bunch of uh, historical fascist Nazi nationalist authors. So uh, they published Dare Richard Walter Dare Richard Walter Dare's you know Blood and Soil book. They published Wyndham Lewis's. Apologia on Hitler. They published all kinds of stuff historically, and and now they're doing originals as well. But one of the historical things they published was a a, a kind of Wehrmacht training manual that was actually translated by the Bureau of Mimetic Warfare, which was an eight chan message board. But they 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 printed it. You know that like that idea, obviously of. Physical perfect, masculine physical perfection is something that runs quite deep in the far right historically, as 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 well as now. And there's a whole kind of can of worms there. But but like I think that young guys should know what they're getting into. Like it should be kind of obvious that there's something else going on here. But I, I think there's probably the appeal of of belonging and an ethos that get, that can pull a certain kind of young guy into a path, uh, a dark path of, of kind of radicalization. And, and look, I mean, I would prefer that Grady Mayfield did not <laughs> go down that path, but he has. And now it's kind of like, uh, I don't think he's sufficiently mature to understand what, what that means. And that's pretty sad. You know, these are predatory movements and the, the first, their first victims are the people that they recruit, I suppose. But yeah, that, that's certainly one story we did. And, like, I don't think we're finished with Mr. Rondo. Let's put it that way. Well, Jason, speaking of gym Nazis, uh, we've recently seen Todd Sampson, the uh, television presenter and ad guru, uh, appearing in a smiling happy snap with Blair Cottrell on Hitler's birthday. He seems to have been interviewing uh, Tom Sewell from the National Socialist Network for a new program on 
love and hate online. Not sure which side Saul will be arguing for or whether, in fact, he will be presenting his body hack of getting electrocuted and speaking to the ghost of Hitler. But uh, having seen the reaction, would you say that Todd Sampson is the victim of cancel culture? I, I would not. I would not say that. I would say that he's making a program which is is foregrounding, you know, neo Nazis. Is it? Is that? I mean, is is that defamatory? I think they're neo Nazis. I, right? think, I, think, I they're, think they're very openly neo Nazis at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I I feel like I should be asking you guys about this. Like, what the hell is going on? But but like, okay, l- let me say something about Tom Sewell. Tom Sewell is one of the most reposted neo Nazis on Telegram. Like people I'm monitoring over here in the United States are, are reposting him. He's he's a kind of influencer, right? He's a he's a, a neo-Nazi influencer on Telegram. I don't know how else to put it. Like he's someone that people pay attention to. You know, Ronaldo Nazaro, my old friend, uh, the the founder of the base, uh, who now lives in Saint Petersburg. He, he made a few posts on Telegram where he he was kind of like trying to engage in this serious debate with Tom Sewell about the future of whatever accelerationist neo-Nazi politics and, and what should be done about, you know, trying to overturn the liberal democratic order. I mean, Tom Sewell is an international figure in these movements. So that, that's my take. Like, I don't think you should be on television, but like, I guess I'm, I would want to ask you, you guys, like why he is, what's going on, what's going on? Because I, I don't, I don't have a great sense of why Todd Sampson would put him on television. Well, I suspect that Todd Sampson, uh, like many of his compatriots in the media, present company excluded, of course, might might think that he's a little bit more intelligent than he is. Uh, Tom Sewell's coming into this thing with a mission, and he can accomplish that very easily, even if he is, uh, you know, made to look like the bad guy. Well, well yeah, his mission is simply like, I, I mean, him getting on television is. You know, he's over-delivering at that point, right, on his mission. Like, mm. just being on television is is all that he needs. It's just like our friend Mr. Mayfield, you know, like getting through two-thirds of basic training in the U.S. Marine Corps is like, that's a result. Getting on television is a result. It doesn't matter if Todd's preferred audience is laughing at Mr. Sewell because it, it, he's on TV, right? Like, he's he's getting his message out to the mainstream. He's being depicted as someone who ordinary people should pay attention to or, or think about. I mean, it's it's very, very simple. And, you know, like, you know, I don't know. I, I've never talked to Todd Sampson. I don't I don't know him. Maybe he's a good guy. Maybe he's a bad guy. I have no idea. But, but here's the thing. I, I think that one of the problems here is that Todd Sampson does not feel immediately endangered by Tom Sewell or the movement that, you know, currently exists that he he is in a kind of leadership position for, or the or the movement that he would like to create, right? Like, if Tom Sewell and his movement are allowed to run wild tomorrow, you know, Todd Sampson probably won't be the first person whose door they knock on, right? Like, and so maybe Todd Sampson just feels safe in in platforming these guys, but you know, maybe a maybe he shouldn't, and b like Tom Sewell being on TV makes a lot of people who are not Todd Sampson are a lot less safe. You know, it, it, it legitimises him. I'm, I'm not saying it, it, like, turns him into Burt Newton, but it, it it makes him more legitimate. It makes him, like, someone who we should listen to. It makes him someone, like, uh, who is not 
so dangerous, right? Like because he's on TV. I, I don't know. It seems colossally reckless to me to, to be putting this guy on TV. Telegram is what it is, um, and Telegram is the appropriate place for Tom. Like television isn't, and it's 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 weird to me that the Australian media is finding this such a difficult lesson to learn. I don't know. Maybe it's just because like Charlottesville hasn't happened there yet, right? I, I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know why it's so hard for people to understand that that getting on mainstream media platforms is is you know, the sort of near-term goal for all of these movements. And then once that's happened, suddenly they're exposed to a whole bunch more people. Suddenly they can recruit more people. Suddenly they've got momentum. Suddenly they look like um, something that, uh, you know, alienated young guys might want to be involved with. And then suddenly you've got even more violence directed at, you know, the categories of people that these folks hate. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just I'm taking a breath here, but I, I find it really frustrating and amazing that the Australian media just cannot seem to come to grips with this. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying the US media is good. It's absolutely not. But in the outlets that kind of see themselves as mainstream or liberal, like like they're not kind of platforming these guys anymore so much. I don't know. Um, I don't know. What What do you think? I it, Am I wrong to be frustrated? <laughs> uh, yes and no. <laughs> I think I think anyone who wants to have some kind of more reasonable discussion about and take seriously the whatever threat might be posed by uh, fascism, yeah. On the other hand, you know, I think there's a convergence of interests actually. Yeah. Whereby someone like Sewell, who has had the opportunity and has been given the opportunity to become fairly practiced in media over the course of the last seven years or so, understands has some understanding of what the media wants and is prepared to provide it uh, for his own reasons, which you've articulated. I think that someone like Todd Sampson, I'm, I've never met Todd. I don't know anything about him really other than understanding he's a, from you know, the advertising industry and um, has produced various kind of, I think, reasonably popular documentaries which seem to be also centred on some kind of immersive experience that he has doing various things. And in this case, I think it's about, it might be difficult for him to produce material which doesn't centre him and his experience in encountering uh, extremities, whether it's, you know, um, pushing his body to the limits or encountering, you know, these extremist actors, which on one level is, um, I think, you know, fine, whatever. But there's a real failure to, and an obvious failure, to grapple with the political significance of doing so in this case. And I don't think you need to, you know, think about Charlottesville. I think Christchurch is much more the immediate example right, of course, and yes. direct direct link to a figure just like, well, in fact, Tom Saul. And I, but I don't think, I think there, there remains that kind of attraction and maybe it appeals to ego or something to be the one who, you know, talks to, explores, investigates, understands these figures in a way that is going to expose something or reveal something that that really isn't there. I don't think there's any... I think most of the arguments that have been mustered and put in favour of this kind of experiment are just simply naive. And the, and the frustration is is that 
the naivety seems to be willful. It's yeah. not the case that there hasn't been a substantial body of literature or practice or understanding, especially, in, you know, even in, well, not even in, but certainly in journalism and, and you know, political writing more generally about, you know, how to go about writing about these subjects generally, like, you know, what are the ethical commitments of uh, journalists and on this subject in particular. But, you know, again, I'm, I, I think of the kind of, you know, decline of the media sector more generally where even the space to have some kind of sensible discussion about these questions is incre- has increasingly evaporated and what's being driven that the media is, is just as much has been just as much incorporated into the attention economy as, as all other kind of, you know, social activity. There's a real drive to produce, you know, to be a content creator that generates clicks and, and attention and, and so on and so forth. And in that environment, that's the kind of environment where, you know, a somewhat savvy or at least semi-competent uh, political figure, especially on the right, can thrive. Emphasis on the semi there. Yeah, I, I, as you were talking, Andy, I, I was just thinking, you know, like, so so Todd Sampson is not going to, he's in the attention economy. The media, as you say, the, the media has kind of collapsed into this attention economy largely, and, and so attention is the main game. For now, I mean, though, that, you know, Todd Sampson is not going to kind of like just screen a snuff movie. I mean, it, it might get a lot of attention, but it's obviously like there is, there is some stuff that is still kind of like beyond the pale for mainstream audiences, right? But and so why why aren't the Nazis beyond the pale? I, I, I think it's because in Australia still there is this idea that this is just something exotic. You know, it's not it's it's a fringe thing. It's not really actually that dangerous. They're never going to take power. It's just oh, wow, that's weird, this guy's a Nazi. You know, it's kind of like um, it's not seen as an immediate danger to, you know, vulnerable people or vulnerable groups in the community or, or to the body politic. It's just seen as this thing that you can kind of, you, you can put, put on show without it being, without being particularly dangerous or whatever, like uh, distressing to people. And I don't, I mean, you know, I, I fell into the trap earlier of saying, you know, there, there hasn't been a Charlottesville. And as you very correctly pointed out, an Australian white nationalist, whatever we want to call him, uh, went to New Zealand and, and massacred, what, 51, k- killed 51 people and, and injured many more. Yeah, and, and, and that's never... There's never been a reckoning over that. So it's it's still like there, there's no danger in any of this somehow for these people. And, yeah, I, I you, you say naivety, and I think that's right. But, but there's also, yeah, I mean, I would say recklessness, really. I mean, it, it's just they haven't understood what's going on, right, with with these movements and with these people and, and they haven't understood that maybe Christchurch was an outcome of stuff that's, that, that had been happening in Australia. That That's never, no one really seems to think about that. Like that the, this was an Australian who grew up in Australia, who absorbed Australian media and came to the conclusion, according to 
uh, you know, the, the, the reports that, that were issued in New Zealand in the wake of this, it came to the conclusion at quite a young age that at, at around the time when the war on terror was really ramping up that, you know, Muslims were bad and, and needed to be exterminated and, and eventually carried that through. There's no one, least of all Todd Sampson, who is thinking, well, maybe like his media diet in Australia had something to do with that. Maybe the the values that he absorbed and was exposed to in in Australia and through the Australian media had something to do with that. No one's no one's seeming to think about that. I don't know. Which is weird. And and you know, like I said, I somehow skipped over that as well. It's disturbing, really. It's disturbing that there hasn't been a reckoning on that. It's disturbing that that has been swept under the carpet and it can't be good. Now, is it naivete or could we consider the fact that perhaps the casino and war criminal lobbies have paid for Todd Sampson to do this to drive recruitment within these groups to keep Nick McKenzie busy? Well, the war criminal lobby seems quite powerful. They seem to be able to get their legal fees paid for and, uh, yeah. It's not outside the realm of possibility. (laughs) The alleged war criminal lobby. Let's say that. Of course. (laughs) Yeah, well, great great segue or whatever, or great insertion, Cam, because it's like at one point guys were getting VCs for killing lots of Muslims. Yeah, I mean, or what was there or what has there been in Australia's mainstream media that's been saying Muslims are human beings, that people escaping wars or collapsed states uh, just just have a kind of humanity that we owe something to. Where, where is that message? I mean, I guess it's probably there from time to time, but uh, I, I don't know what your policy is on the show about naming mass murderers, but um, Brenton Tarrant, you know, if you look at his biography in the course of his life, he got a lot of dehumanising messages about Muslims at a formative age and then at some point he acted as if Muslims weren't human beings as if they were just kind of fodder for for 8chan, you know, fodder for some some awesome posting on 8chan, like not human beings with families, not human beings who feel pain or whatever. Like, and, and you know, like I remember that time. I remember the early 2000s in Australia after 9-11. There were not a lot of people... Uh, or messages saying that that Muslims were were human beings in that sense. There were a lot of messages saying that, like, and and after the Bali bombing, for example, like uh, that that group of people were somehow representative of of all Muslims is was was something that was you know uh, taken as red. I think it was um, Tony Abbott who declared a few years ago that uh, Islam needed to undertake its own uh, reformation of some sort to you know, cleanse itself of these uh, radical elements. And that was uh, a former prime minister. So, yeah, I think both media and politics were saturated with this either depiction at its worst um, of Muslims as being non-human, but sometimes even not at its best, but in another sense, always being under suspicion. Yeah. I mean, I mean... Do we do counterfactuals on the show? I mean, I know they're cheap, but like, 
Go on, count and fact it up. If Brenton Tarrant you know, was was a Balinese guy or an Indonesian guy who who shot fifty one, you know, Australasian and Western European tourists in Bali. I mean, this would be a national trauma. Why? Why? Why is that incident in New Zealand not? I, I just feel like every media institution, well, with some exceptions, but the, the major media institutions in the country have have basically sought to sweep sweep that under the carpet, at least as something that we need to reflect upon as, you know, a, a national community or whatever. Like, like it's 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 just the act of a madman, and and it it could be that, but it could be something else as well. It could be the act of someone who has issues of their own, but is just responding to very, very clear messages that they've had since childhood, effectively. I I, I don't know. It's just very disturbing that there there really was never a reckoning with that. I don't know what what you guys think. I'm harping on this now, but it just, it's just weird. It's like this huge, lacuna you know in the in the national discourse even the the lefties kind of don't want to talk about it it seems like you know like I, i'm talking about the the sort of lefties with columns and stuff it, it, it's it seems really strange that the worst terrorist attack i think in new zealand history was or, or terrorist attack in the modern sense anyway you know outside of Colonial wars uh, was was carried out by an Australian, and and that, that's that's not a, it, that's probably not a sentence you hear very often in Australia. One thing it immediately brings to mind, and I'm constantly reminded of, is the praise that uh, Tarrant had for Cottrell and the UPF and so on, and a specific reference he made to a rally that was organised in Coburg several years ago, at which the UPF played a role, but also the now defunct True Blue Crew, and uh, they had organised a, a counter rally, and they attempted to articulate some reason for doing so. And among it, among the reasons they cited, was um, support for Australia's harsh system of border controls to uh, argue against, you know, Islamic infiltration, so called, to support the closure of remote Aboriginal communities, and so on. And I thought at the time, and, and still think, there was some sense in which what they were responding to was very mainstream opinion and very, I mean, you know, just we're in the context of an election and uh, Labor's recently declared or re-emphasised the fact that in terms of, you know, Fortress Australia, uh, it doesn't want to and doesn't, in fact, depart uh, very much from the coalition. There's bipartisan support for the controls that are now being replicated in the UK and and so on and so forth. But um, it's uh, the connections, that there are multiple connections and, and in some cases they're quite intimate. But it, it's, I, 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 what I'm trying to say is that in a sense I, I don't necessarily regard as being um, a blame or regard as being extreme the position that the TBC and these other kind of racist thugs took when they took to the streets because what they were doing was saying, you know, look, this is what... Mainstream politics is telling us these are we we do embody the will of the people, the will of Australia, and we're prepared to go out there and you know wave the flag and, and shout and do the rest of it. Why should we be penalised? We're simply we're, our views reflect those of a, a much larger 
community, uh, political community, we should not be penalised. And of course, you know, Tarrant wasn't um, directly involved, but he was one of a very large online audience through Facebook and other social media platforms that was cheering them on and was thrilled to see them and actually inspired and found that, yes, it's time that we took action. His case, in his case, you know, it was uh, incredibly violent, but the impetus, the general impetus was we need to act. So come on, boys, come on, lads, let's do it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in a, in a sense, their primary challenge, their primary rhetorical challenge is, is almost to conservatives. It's like, well, you're saying all of this stuff about borders and, and, and Muslims and, and a strict enforcement of border policies, and yet out in the streets I see all of these non-white people who I don't like. We're just applying, right, pl- practically applying what you put out there rhetorically, so how can that be be wrong? And, and so, as in <laughs> interwar Europe, you know, the, the primary responsibility here actually is is with conservatives who are not kind of repudiating any of this, who are not drawing any lines, despite wanting that kind of legitimacy of being a party of government or whatever. They, they don't want to accept any of the consequences of the rhetoric that they employ in order to win elections and gain political advantage. And I'm not, I'm not at all, by the way, trying to absolve the Labor Party, who have, who have made uh, a brutal border uh, regime into bipartisan policy. I mean, that's... To, to me, that's kind of unforgivable. But, I mean, the, the, the primary challenge that they're issuing actually is to the part of the right that likes to consider itself mainstream, right, like who are wanting to put red meat out there without necessarily engaging in the extra-legal violence that a, a, a certain part of their base, you know, wants. And, and so that's that's their primary target in a way. Anyway, I, I think this started out with Todd Sampson. I, it, it's completely reckless for him to just parade this guy as if he's another sort of like legitimate voice that we need to kind of like consider. Like it's, 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 yeah, it's reckless. And I can only think that he's doing it because he doesn't, you know, and I guess I'm accu- accusing the guy of moral cowardice here, but, but I can, I, I have to think that the, the part of that is because it's just not going to affect him, at least not immediately. I mean, you know, like as <laughs> liberal democracies degrade, the the, the 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 target group gets bigger for for fascists, right? Like that, you know, and eventually it, it encompasses everyone except themselves. So, uh, but but for now, you know, it's it's he's not he's not going to be on their list. So so maybe that's why he feels safe in putting them on the TV. Maybe that's a heavy accusation, but I don't know. I, 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 I can't think of another reason why he would do it. Isn't a body hacking in the uh, you know, general uh, field of transhumanism? I don't know if he's that far down the list, really. He might, he might find that he needs to redo the math on that. He may. He may, but like as usual, he'll 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 redo the sums too late. Speaking of dehumanising people and uh, the, the media and politics' role in that, we've seen recently some of the anti-trans 
culture war from over the seas uh, imported into Australia and specifically into the election campaign with uh, the captain's pick in the seat of Warringah. But we are only seem to be at the uh, women in sport stage of that culture war. Jason, what do we have coming down the pike? So the SBLC has an annual publication called The Year in Hate and Extremism, which is, is a kind of like count, I suppose, of hate groups and hate incidents and other stuff for the previous year. So, you know, uh, I guess it was last month in March that the 2021 one was published. So uh, as a part of the year in hate and extremism, you know, we we included the section on community resilience and on people pushing back on hate, which I think, you know, that's good. That's important. So I interviewed Stephanie Byers, who is a state representative in Kansas, at the state of Kansas, who was the first Indigenous transgender woman elected to a state house in the United States. And she said to me that this whole like sports thing is is kind of like she called it a shiny object like it's a kind of like the, the argument about fairness in sports she thinks is a distraction and she said it's not about fairness in sports it's about putting kids back into closets and that's what all of this is is about you know like so anything about fairness in sports is really like saying that you should not be able to live, you know, in terms of your, your gender identity, right? Like you should not be able to compete in sports under your gender identity. You know, sports is a distraction, right? Sports is a distraction. Like it, it's not about fairness in sports. It's about putting people back in the closet. So in other words, it's about saying that you can't exist under the the, the, the gender identity that you, you identify with. So I, I think that, it's the thin end of the wedge. I mean, and, and the right are constantly trying to find these things. They're constantly trying to find something that, that like is going to animate kitchen table conversation. And, you know, like others have said this before. I mean, this is the first time anyone on the right has taken any kind of interest in women's sports, right? <laughs> like it's just not, <laughs> it's just absolute bullshit. They're not, they don't care about women's sports. Uh, they care about like, pushing people back into the closet. They care about demonising transgender people in order to mobilise their base, in order to take over school boards, in order to take over all kinds of local level institutions, right, like to mobilise people to do that. Because what they really want to do is eliminate public schools. What they really want to do is make it so that um, transgender people just don't or cannot have any kind of public profile. Uh, they want to make it so that a particular kind of uh, morality is sovereign, you know, and and determines who who can and cannot speak publicly and have a kind of public existence, an authentic public existence. And you know what she said to me is about schools. You know, they they see schools. Well, well, Representative Byers had a long career as a teacher and she said, you know, schools are a place where a transgender kid is going to find some level of kind of acceptance, right? And she said that she had found not only acceptance but active support when she had transitioned, right? Like she she found that her colleagues and everyone in the school community had supported her and, and, and that's what public schools 
they're a zone of safety, I think is what she said to me. They're a kind of, and, and, and the right see that and they want to eliminate it. And, you know, school sport is kind of part of that as well. So her recommendation was to avoid getting bogged down in the, in the argument about women's sport and just focus on the fact that this is trying to push people, real human beings, you know, who, who, who identify in a particular way, trying to push them back into the closet, trying to make it so that they can't be that person publicly, trying to make it so that they have to repress that part of themselves. And look, Scott Morrison, yeah, I don't know. He's trying to win an election. And I think that like, yeah, putting this person out there and, and, and supporting this candidate is a way of dog whistling to a particular constituency that, you know, like they're probably going to lose in Moringa, right? Like <laughs> that, that's not what it's about. It's about saying like we share your prejudice and you should vote for us. And I don't think that the Labor Party has had a particularly good response to that, which is not surprising, but, uh, you know, like that's that's what it's about. We're, we're the most kind of bigoted party and and... Bigots are us. Come and vote for us. I, I don't think he's trying to eliminate public education necessarily. I don't know. You, you guys might have a different view, but I, I don't. I don't think he has a grand plan. I, I think he's just trying to put together a sufficiently large coalition to either win the election or limit the damage. More likely at this point. So that's what he's up to. But like you know, this this person, this candidate who he's supporting, is. It seems to me, in my opinion, speaking from the United States uh, under First Amendment protection, it seems like she's a bigot. <laughs> uh, and and if you allow bigots into your coalition, they will claim space and defend it, and eventually you'll be dancing to their tune. And I don't know if he cares about that. He's probably not going to be around for that long, but but that's that's the end point, and that's what we're seeing in the United States. I mean, it doesn't stop it. At school sports, you know, it, it eventually goes to bathrooms and, and then it eventually goes to you can't do any kind of gender transition therapy to someone who's under 18 and then you have people having to flee states that have enacted this legislation because they've got a trans kid who they want to support and then they want to get treatment for. I mean, it, that, that, that's what you end up with here. Australia's political system is slightly different and... It may take longer to get there, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, trans people are absolutely the, the, the kind of, they're the kind of lightning rod at the moment, I think. They're, they're, the, they're the people who unfortunately are, the entire right can, can unite around hating them, you know, from Ben Shapiro to, you know, Ronaldo Nazaro. Everyone on the right can unite around the fact that they hate trans people, and that and that's really bad news for trans people because it it means that like that's going to be reflected in law and what happens at their school and what happens in their workplace and what happens in their university and and any humane person, including people on the left in Australia, should really be pushing back against this because it's not like it's not even like do you know any trans people or are you a trans person yourself? Like, it's like, this is like, this is like the scapegoated identity du jour. And they're going, they don't care how many of these people die, how many of these people are run out of public life, how many of these people have to 
like live it under a cloud forever, right? It's just like they're the they're the target that they're going to leverage to get what they want. I'm not going to say Scott Morrison is naive or making a mistake. I think he knows what he's doing, and I think he's a fairly amoral human being. Uh, but that's what he's letting into Australian politics. That's what he's ushering in. And if you if you want a number one thing to resist, I think it would be the scapegoating of trans people because it. it from where I'm sitting, it looks like the, the the kind of poison that you see in 1930s Germany, you know, with with Jews or whatever. I I, I don't want to draw hasty equivalences or anything like that, or disrespect the tragedy of the Holocaust. But it, it's kind of like the same dynamic. These these are the people we're singling out to sort of turn the world on its axis. Does that make sense? I th- I thought it was so strange, uh, you know, because you sort of a uh, you. It's easy to you know uh, class, look at some of this stuff and think oh, th- these people are just evil, and I think that that can be sometimes be a reductive thing if you want to look at what's motivating people. But looking at some of the legislation that was being proposed, you know, to stop the grooming of children, and we're talking about shutting down education programs that are about teaching children things like empathy and compassion, right? And it's like, is this how much of that is just a you know? An accident of the fact that we are we are engaging in this campaign of dehumanization and repression, and how much of it is well, if we can stop them from being empathetic at a young age, it'll be easier later on. Yeah, it's like anything, any, anything that the, it, it's trying to excise from education anything that is not you know immediately conducive to the kind of scapegoating that that that, that is running the campaign. I mean, it, it's yeah. They want to. They want to train children. They want to remove any obstacles to training children to be to, to also engage in scapegoating into the future. And, and like, like uh, to, at the cost of shutting down Disney or you know removing like the privileges of Disneyland in Florida, which is which is nuts. But yeah, I mean, I I think that someone like. Someone like Scott Morrison, you know, is a good example. I, I don't know if he ultimately cares about this issue. I, I have no idea. It, it doesn't seem like it's something that he's talked about before, right? But um, opportunism will get right-wing politicians a long way with this stuff, right? Like he's searching for something that, yeah, can can save a few out-of-suburban seats or get them a little closer because – whatever testing has shown that there are people who are really exercised about the idea that transgender girls are somehow going to win wrestling matches, right? Like uh, there's political leverage there for him. I suspect that's what's going on with him. And and that's why he's prepared to, you know, keep, keep it going with this person. And, and, you know, interestingly, if you go back to 96, Howard cut Pauline Hanson loose, Right. At, at, at a cost to him, I think, which he probably regretted. And Scott Morrison's not going to make the same mistake with this transgender stuff, right? Like he's going to he's going to milk it with someone who he probably is not going to have to deal with after the election, right? Like he, whichever result the election has. And yeah, it's 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 horrible. I mean, this this grooming stuff. 
The, the grooming stuff, by the way, doesn't stop with transgender people. I mean, that, that is like something that is being aimed at LGBTQ people in general, right? Like the libs of TikTok account, like that account was, was singling out teachers who simply came out to their students and said kind of like, it's okay to be gay, I'm gay, here's what that means, it's, it's fine, right? Uh, like it was singling out teachers who were saying things like that as being groomers. I mean, so, you know, like once you, once you start on that course, things can escalate really, really quickly. I mean, they, they have escalated. I, I, I don't want to downplay the, the real world consequences this has had for, for, for teachers and, and just people doing their thing already, right? Like, it's cost people jobs. It's 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 subjected people to mass harassment. Whatever. I'm not saying, but but like things can always get worse, right? And and I just I have to say, here, uh, confessing to some naivety on my part, I, I you know having looked at this stuff for a really long time, you know I knew that that trans transgender people were a kind of unifying scapegoat for the right. But but I'm actually kind of surprised how quickly it's gone back to, like, gay and lesbian people are, are somehow, like, maybe they're groomers. They're not legitimate. They, they, they shouldn't be allowed to, to, to be publicly out, right? Like, they shouldn't be teachers. They shouldn't be in positions of responsibility. I'm kind of surprised. I thought, like, maybe the right in the US had kind of accepted the fact that, you know, gay and lesbian people could, could be out in public and, and could be solid citizens, but, you know, they haven't. And so that's that's a marker of my naivety uh, and, and a marker perhaps of how much the right has changed uh, and and gotten worse. Uh, but, yeah, I hopefully Scott Morrison will never be forgiven for, for sort of allowing this to be an election issue, but, you know, I can remember Tampa as well, and and John Howard seems to be forgive, have been forgiven for that. So uh, maybe maybe other people are less vengeful than me. Is that the problem? Maybe. <laughs> I guess um just finally, Jason, a final question: Elon Musk, genius or madman? Oh, like are they mutually exclusive? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he's up to. I've, I've seen pretty, some pretty good analysis. There was a Reuters story that I can send you a link to if you want to put it in your show notes the other day, saying that, like, it's not clear that he can actually do it. Like, it might kind of, like, tank Tesla stocks too much. You know, he might, he he might like, so he's on the hook for a billion dollars, by the way, if he doesn't actually go through with the deal. But, like, maybe a billion dollars is chunk change compared to the contraction in Tesla shares if he does decide to go ahead with it. It seems like a brain fart. I don't know if he really wants to run Twitter or if he really has the capacity to do it. The interesting thing, I suppose, is that the right seem to really think they're going to... The other thing is, I mean, the stuff he's promising to do with Twitter, it doesn't seem totally clear that he can actually deliver that. I mean, he's not just running a, a company that has a footprint in America. It has an international footprint. And, you know, the European Union for the most part, has pretty robust hate speech laws and, you know, like he's just not going to be able to run Twitter as Gab and 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 have it be what it currently is in the European Union. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's not <laughs> he's more constrained than he's sort of letting on to his supporters on the right. But but like I, I find it really interesting that everyone on the right seems to think that he is going to deliver Twitter to them as a as a kind of playground. And and it's really interesting that they think that that they want that. And it's really interesting that they think that Twitter somehow wouldn't change if 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 that happened. What is it that that they want? Is it that that they just want to taunt people who disagree with them? Like what is the end game here? What is the outcome they're looking for? That's that's the question in my mind. The world. I guess, yeah. This time yeah. Not, there's no you know, from the, the bathrooms to the public platforms, uh, there's a contest. It's an eternal struggle. <laughs> yes, an ethos of struggle, I suppose. Yeah, no, you're right, I, I guess. But it just seems like in practical terms what would happen is if Twitter was run like Gab is, it would probably shrink to about the audience that Gab has, right? I, it, it seems like that, and then it would just not be profitable. And it doesn't seem like... You can spend fifty billion dollars and, and and deliberately make a business even less profitable than it currently is, with no consequences. And I think that's probably what he's thinking about at the moment. <laughs> but yeah, you're right, Andy. It's just like yeah, they just want everything. They just want to own everything and control everything, and whatever it takes. Right. Well, on that cheery note. <laughs> Uh, th- Jason, thanks for joining us. People can find you on Twitter for now yeah. at Jason underscore A underscore W, although not too often, I, I suspect. Yeah, I, I, you know, I do what I have to on Twitter, but um, I had a bit of a tantrum the other day. But yeah, I'll probably be around there, and you know, like my emails there and stuff. And yeah, people can people can contact me that way for sure. Yeah. And find you on Mastodon as well. Yes, Fosterdon. Well, Jason, thanks for joining us. Andy, that's the show. We'll be back next week. See you later. Yes. Bye-bye. Forces
It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter.